A lifetime ago, I was working for a company in Atlanta called MSI Data Corporation. We were repairing handheld data entry terminals that are used in grocery stores primarily to count their stock. There are four of us technicians, and I was fortunate because all of the technicians were like myself, people, churchgoers that believed in God. So as we're sitting at our workbenches, we would often come up with little games we could kind of play while we were working. And one of them was to think of somebody in the Bible and for the others to guess who we were thinking of. So it's going along pretty well, and it turned out it was Mike's turn. So Mike starts telling us a little bit about this person. Of course, it was, you know, obscure clues because we were supposed to figure out who it was. We go on and on, and we are just getting nowhere figuring out who Mike was talking about. So we said, okay, Mike, you're going to have to give us a clue. What's the first letter of the name? He says, you, you, you. So we started Isaiah and all kinds of different names and just could not figure it out. It's okay, Mike, you got to tell us a little bit more. So Mike tells us a little bit more, and he finally gets around. I mean, we're just not getting this. And we're feeling pretty ashamed because all of us were faithful churchgoers and we couldn't pull this out. Well, finally, Mike tells us, Philip met him on the road to Gaza. And we all go, the Ethiopian eunuch? He said, yeah. And we all just started howling and said, Mike, eunuch starts with E, not U. It was a good time, but that was an important point that he missed was, was that eunuch started with an E. We're reading about the Ethiopian eunuch today. We're in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, talking about a bold baptism. Read along with me. Now a angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Join me again in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear what you're speaking to us so that we may apply it and live closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the wonderful things, I've, I've said it before, I'll, I'll beat the drum till I'm gone, is just the depth in God's word. That's just, that what we just read is a, just a nice story, an interesting story, a story of mystery of how uh, Philip, first he was given the job to go down to Gaza, and I assume he had to walk there. It wasn't an easy trip, it was a mountainous area, but then he's transported out of there, that's fascinating. But there's such depth in God's Word. And we see God actively at work in the spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's where God, Jesus instituted the church and now it's spreading. Well, this is an occasion where it spread. In Acts, earlier in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, we read that Philip was in Samaria. Samaria is a little region north of Jerusalem. And uh, go ahead and throw that map up for me, Drew. And it, uh, you can see it there, up there where it says Samaria. There was a town of Samaria. It just says in the Bible he was in the city in Samaria. So we don't know if it's the city of Samaria or just the area. But there Judah is down below, and that's where Jerusalem was. Well, he was ordered to go down to the road to Gaza, which would have been a, a very important road from Gaza, which of course is in the news today, that's what we're hearing so much about. There was another road that led on down to Egypt and into northern Africa, and it was an important trade route. A lot of people would have been up and down that way. But Philip was up in Samaria, and he was up there preaching. And the Bible tells us one reason he was up there is because of the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem. Just last week we had looked at the stoning of Stephen and that's what had just happened. And with that stoning, the persecution increased. And we, we had read how Stephen was falsely accused of, of blasphemy against God in his temple and how when he stood up to the Sanhedrin, he was stoned to death for that. So that persecution, they weren't dumb, they fled they had other places they could preach, but that persecution was used to get them out of their comfort zone, out of their home, so to speak, and into new areas. And when they went there, they were proclaiming the gospel. And in those verses 4 through 7, it tells us that many people were healed and many demons were driven out and that the whole town was rejoicing for all the good that was going on. And then it goes into another story there in 9 through 25, talking about the work there in Samaria and how it continued the revival and many people were coming to know the Lord. And there was a magician, or your Bible may say a sorcerer. His name was Simon in that area. And it says that he was baptized, which should tell us that he had become a believer of Jesus Christ, that he had accepted the gospel for himself, and he noticed that when the apostles would lay hands on other people, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would start performing miraculous works. And so he wanted that. 
his mistake and where he angered Peter and John was he offered to buy it. How much can I give to get this power from you? And of course, the power of God is not something that's for sale. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can rent for a little while. It comes at God's bidding on your life of infilling you. We know that when we become Christians, we are told that the Holy Spirit infills us, but we are also told, Paul says later, that we can quench that Holy Spirit. We can keep Him from working in our lives through unbelief, through not relying on Him, through not letting Him do what He wants to do in our lives. And so for some who had deep faith, the Holy Spirit was filling them and empowering them, and God was working directly and powerfully to spread His gospel throughout the world, to give it a kickstart, as it were. And so many people were able to, to do this uh, evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Part of that, when I read, I, I, I do wonder if Simon wasn't a little misunderstood, if that he wasn't thinking that he, uh, he, it was just a commodity he could buy, but that was just kind of the only way he knew to do it, that he, he thought perhaps if I make a donation that I'll get an extra uh, blessing. So I, I, I have a little question in my mind whether he still intentioned or not. That's a general way you read it and you decide there 9 through 25, but that's how Peter and John took it. They took it that he was coming at it with wrong motives, wrong ideas, and they actually kind of issued a curse upon him a little bit on that. There at uh, verse 23 or 22, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in our heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So they were there. They know what was going on with Simon. And they, they are a better judge of what was happening than I. But I, sometimes I have that little question. But regardless, we're into our passage in chapter 26. The work's going on in Samaria. I'm sure Philip was enjoying it, seeing the people coming to know Christ and being baptized and praising the Lord and seeing others come to know. And God doesn't let them rest. He says, i got something for you. I want you to go down to the Gaza Road. So... Philip obeys. He gets down to the road to Gaza. The Ethiopian eunuch comes along in his chariot. We're told he went there to worship. There were people outside of Jerusalem who worshipped. This is one that came up. I don't know if, uh, I assume he bought the scroll of Isaiah for himself. It would have been an expensive purchase. Every one of those had to be handwritten by a scribe. And so it would be difficult to obtain one, but he did. And so as he's going along in the chariot, he's reading the book of Isaiah. We read the section he was reading. God says, go up there, Philip, see him. So Philip runs alongside the chariot, obviously in pretty good shape to be able to do that. He runs long enough to where he can hear what, Isaiah, what the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. He recognized the book of Isaiah they strike up a conversation. Do you know what you're reading? And he makes a very plain but a very true statement. How can I know unless somebody tells me? I had a professor that used to like to say that I didn't know till somebody told me, talking about stupid questions. 
I didn't know till somebody told me, and that's true of all of us. So Philip, he invites Philip up into the chariot. Philip starts expounding on the book of Isaiah to him, but then I'm sure that he went on and started talking about the events in Jerusalem. Perhaps the Ethiopian eunuch had questions about that. He had heard of the big events. Perhaps he was even there during that time, and he was just now returning. So Philip would have shared with him about Jesus Christ and about what Jesus went through. He would have essentially presented the gospel to the eunuch, and it struck home with him, that message. He must have told Philip about Jesus being baptized there in the River Jordan, how John was baptizing and Jesus went and asked to be baptized and how others were baptized because when he saw some water, he said, what prevents me from being baptized? He wanted to take that step. So they stopped the chariot. They got out. Philip baptized him. He would have, the Ethiopian eunuch would have had uh, other people with him, guards perhaps, or certainly somebody to drive the chariot. So they all witnessed this event of the eunuch being baptized. As soon as that happened, God said, got another place for you and took them off. Star Trek has nothing on God. God had a transporter way before Star Trek came along. But Philip is transported back to Azotus, which is the modern day Ashdod. And it tells us the Ethiopian eunuch never saw him again, but rejoiced greatly at what had happened to him. He went on his way rejoicing. It is a joyful experience. It is a great time. But what we see from that is God had established a divine encounter for Philip. He wanted Philip to engage with that Ethiopian eunuch. God knew the eunuch would have the scripture that he'd be reading, and he knew that he would need understanding, and God wanted that gospel to, to be carried into northern Africa. And so he sent Philip down there to, to talk with him. But it also means that he could trust Philip. He knew Philip would obey him. He knew when Philip met the eunuch, given the opportunity, that he would proceed to go on and tell the eunuch. So there's a, more, than, more than just one or two things happening here of God drawing these people together, creating this situation with a high official over the whole treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia is the one that Philip talked to. When he returned, he would have been a man of high esteem. He would have been a man people listened to. And of course, again, there were all those who witnessed what had happened. So God caused a divine encounter. God causes those encounters today. He brings people into our lives. They cross our paths. We hear about a situation that we can pray, that we can speak to them. Lewis shared some weeks ago about opportunities he's had with people where the door got open for him to share about his faith in Jesus Christ. The difference is being ready to step through that door, being willing to step through that door and say something and not thinking you've got to know everything to do that, but to know you've got a Holy Spirit indwelling within you, 
that if you just give yourself to him, he will give you the words to speak. It doesn't have to be flowery. It doesn't have to be high theology. It can just be that simple message. This is where I was before Christ. This is how I came to know Christ. This is my life afterwards. So Philip did that. You have those opportunities. God does that. This chapter 8 focuses on baptism. The baptisms up in northern Samaria when Philip preached the word. The baptism of the sorcerer and others. The baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. But baptisms weren't new with Jesus Christ. He didn't institute them. They had existed for thousands of years, literally. If you go back and read Leviticus chapter 15, you'll see the instructions God gave about baptism to the Hebrews. It was recognized that that water can symbolize cleansing. And it was necessary for them to do that before they would go into the temple or before they would lead in worship. And certainly if we saw those people in that time, we would say they need a bath. They need cleansing. They lived out in the desert. They didn't have showers to jump in every day or two or three times a day. Uh, when, when you think about Jesus washing the feet of the people, if you think about walking around in sandals, no socks. Okay, guys, they didn't wear socks with their sandals. Oh, thank goodness. But they, their feet would have gotten messy. They'd have been walking along with animal droppings and all kinds of stuff. But Jesus knelt down and was a servant. He washed their feet. So they saw this necessary cleansing, but it fit into their theology about God cleansing from unrighteousness. God had taught. He had given the laws of Moses. He had given them other instructions so that they would know what righteousness is and what unrighteousness is. And to be right before God, you needed to be righteous. You needed to be cleansed. And so that's an attitude of the heart that's evidenced through an outward action, baptism. So it had been going on for a long, long time. And we have that record of Jesus coming to John, wanting to be baptized in the Holy Ghost ascending upon him like a dove. And it was a joyous experience. The water used for baptism with the Hebrews was very important. It couldn't be just any water. Excuse me. They had seven different definitions of allowable. But part of it is it was defined as living water. And they had, even in Jesus' day, they had the idea of living water. And almost everyone there had to rely on a well. Again, it was desert area. They didn't have plumbing running. They didn't have eight-inch pipes running up and down the road carrying city water. They had to dig it out of the ground if they didn't live by a river or a lake. And there were different kinds of wells. Some of the wells got water from just seepage from the rocks. It gradually would just soak in there and fill up the well. But then other wells were dug such that they tapped into an underground stream or an underground river. It was flowing water. It was fresher. It was probably cooler. It was a much better tasty water. And that was called living water. 
In John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, carrying on that conversation. And He says to her, it's recorded in John 4.10, the lady asks Him, says, well, how are you going to get any water? You don't have a bucket. would have given you living water. Jesus referring to himself as living water. Living water is what was necessary to the Hebrews for a proper cleansing. Living water was necessary to, to show that repentance, to show that change of heart. And so Jesus used that analogy that they understood about living water and called himself, I am the living water. The one that gives life. And so she said, give me this water that I would never thirst and have to come draw. So the Hebrews had been taught it was necessary to be baptized in living water to show their repentance and cleansing of sin. God, from the beginning, was teaching His people how to live and follow Him. Repentance was necessary. The change of heart is what must happen. God told Samuel when he was looking for David, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. David, the great king of Israel, was known to have a whole heart for God. Doesn't mean he was sinless. He sinned grievously. But his heart desired to serve and honor God with his life. That's a whole heart for God. That's what God looks at. But that baptism is an outward expression of an inner spiritual condition. Baptism is a testimony of that repentance and surrender to Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch, had, having heard that gospel from Philip, believed and desired to be baptized, along with all those who watched him saw that. Repentance, turning from one's sin and sinful ways, is a liberating event. The picture in Hebrew is very simple. You're going one direction, you realize you're error and you turn to go the other direction. That's all repentance is. It's changing from the wrong direction to the direction of Jesus Christ. It is believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that belief frees us from the chains of sin and regret. It loosens us from the chains that hold us. It allows the Holy Spirit, God, to come dwell within us. That's why he can say, I will never leave you nor forsake you, because he is within you. You can't go high enough. You can't go deep enough. You can't go far enough to escape him. He is with you. That baptism is also a sign of fellowship. When we're baptized, we're saying to the world and the local body of believers, they say to us, you're now in fellowship with God and with us. You're one of us now. It's an adoption into the family of God. It represents a change of destination from eternal death separating from God to eternal life with Him forever. That's what it's testifying to, that you no longer are a slave to sin and you're now one of His children. It is necessary for us to remember the correct order of salvation we can put the cart before the horse, as it were. 
It first comes to that realization of a sin nature. That's what Paul talked about so much where Adam and Eve fell, that that imputed the sin nature to all of us who came afterwards. And it's that sin nature that separates us from God. And it's that sin nature that causes us to sin. There's a little bit of a, it's a, a, little bit of a delineation in word. We have sin, as in our sin nature, and we commit sins. God forgives that sin nature and he forgives our sins. And that's necessary for us to realize that, to realize we are under the penalty of death, to realize that it is upon us, that the wages of sin is death. Second, we realize we've got no power to redeem ourselves from that penalty. That's what the whole Old Testament with the lesson of the law could be capsulated and to say is that no matter how hard they tried, no matter how good they were, they could never be perfect, perfectly righteousness, which was God's standard. Someone had to come to be that. Someone had to be a scapegoat, an unblemished lamb. And that took a God-man to do that, Jesus Christ. Third, we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that sin nature, we often don't realize, or we, we may not have thought about it, but because of that, we are deaf to God. We don't have, think about Him, we don't hear from Him, and if it were not Him that quickened our spirit, that woke it up to our need, we would be doomed forever. But God, not only in providing the price for our sin, provided the way for us to get there, the way for us to hear. He quickened you so that you would hear His voice, realize your need. And so that's the next step we do. We repent of our sin. We change that direction. We accept His gift of salvation. And having been cleansed, having made that decision in our life, by the, and having been saved by Jesus Christ, we then follow in baptism to give us a physical event that helps us it helps us to be able to point back to a time it helps us I had I've had ministers encourage us sitting in the congregation to make us a little makeshift cross maybe to put a piece of paper or maybe to write on that our sins and take it out into the backyard and bury it just not that it had any mystical power, but it's just something concrete for us to do to help us connect that. And that's what baptism can be. It gives us a physical event to commemorate our rebirth and to testify to the world we're now affiliated with Jesus Christ and his followers. Lastly, and for the rest of our lives until he calls us home to heaven, we yield our lives to Him, follow His commands, and He's not just our Savior, He's our Lord. The old preacher said, if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. He can't be halfway. You can't hold this part out. He is Lord of all. And we acknowledge that. We sing that song, All to Jesus I Surrender. And it's a daily, moment-by-moment -moment commitment we have to make because it's so easy 
for us to fall back on our old ways. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 20. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, a terrible price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, giving that over to him. We're, we were slaves. We are slaves of sin that were purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We've been purchased by His blood into the freedom Jesus Christ gives us to live according to His will and His way. We are slaves, servant to something or someone. The Jews, and Jesus said that, argued with them. So we've never been slaves to anyone. We're children of our father Abraham. And Jesus corrected them. You're slaves to your sin. We come into this world as a slave to that sin nature. Jesus redeems us from that servanthood or dominion of sin. And the Hebrews has a concept Paul called being a bond servant. A bond servant is one who chose to stay in servanthood. Perhaps they had fulfilled their indentured status. Perhaps they had earned their freedom. But they chose to stay with that master to serve him, that was a bond servant. It was different than a slave that was bought off the market. This was a person who voluntarily chose to serve their master. Paul said, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I choose to submit to him as my master. I choose to live for him. That's a valuable thing for us Christians to choose, to realize I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. The Holy Spirit dwells within me, and I am now a servant of the Most High God. That's the, where the rubber meets the road for us. It always starts having that assurance that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, that I've genuinely entered into a relationship with Him, accepted His redeeming work on my behalf, and followed Him. And then, day by day, yielding ourselves to Him, waking up in the morning, Lord, help me to live for You. Show me what You would have me to do. Tell me about those divine appointments, Lord, so I'm ready. And then at night, forgive me, Father, for I've fallen. Help me do better the next day. Constantly thinking of Him, living for Him, and understanding that verse in Romans 8, 28 and 29. For all things come together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God turns the bad into good if we trust Him, yield to Him. And so as we go through life, when things that upset us happen, when bad things happen, if we have that assurance, we can say, Lord, I know You got this. You got my back. And I'm going to trust You to lead me into the paths of righteousness. Lead me beside the still waters. Lead me to that pasture where I can graze again. 
knowing that the Savior you trusted for your salvation is the Savior you can trust for each situation every day. We're going to see trusting Jesus, simply trusting. We trust every day. When we drive down the road, we're trusting that guy stays in his lane. When we sit down in the pews or in a chair, we trust it's going to hold us up. We trust in a lot. We can simply trust in Jesus.